Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week I speak with Mike Williams, editor of Sight and Sound magazine. Their special issue with the greatest films of all time is just out. Plus Vanessa Grau from the Messy Nasty Chic Guides. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Every decade, the celebrated film title Sight and Sound asks film critics what are the greatest films of all time. The iconic poll helped to solidify the fame of Citizen Kane and Vertigo. The new list is out in their most recent issue. Incredibly exciting. I've welcomed Mike Williams to the studio. He's the editor-in-chief of Sight and Sound, and he goes through the list with me. Mike Williams from Sight and Sound magazine. Welcome to The Stack. Big fan of the title. And Mike, tell us, uh, since when you became the editor? Fairly recently still, right? In Sight and Sound terms, mm -hmm. given that my predecessor was there for almost 25 years and one of his predecessors was there for about the same time. It's still quite recent in those terms. I joined in August 2019, so I've been there for just over three years now. Still a baby, I would say, right? <laughs> and, Mike, again, when you became the editor, there's been quite a few changes. Not so much in content. I mean, the magazine is still great. It's for all cinema lovers. But the, it looked to me very fresh. It's something, I don't know, quite nice. Was that your idea as well? Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to do with the magazine was make it feel like it was more open to a wider range of cinema lovers and readers. I started reading Sight and Sound when I was a teenager. The first issue I bought, I think, was in 1997. It was, I think there was a David Lynch cover in 1997, and it was very influential on me in terms of encouraging me into a much wider range of cinema than I knew before then, and I felt like it was such a gateway for me. It was a real inspiration for me to go and study film at university. It was, you know, it was a major part of my DNA. And I really felt like I wanted as many people as possible outside of that established core readership to have that same experience. And I felt that perhaps because the magazine hadn't been redesigned for a long time and you know we all know magazines can over a little bit of time get a bit too familiar and a little bit stale and Sight and Sound's reputation internationally was completely intact in terms of what it stood for but perhaps a little bit of that reputation was that it had become a little bit overly academic and not necessarily that accessible to people who weren't already experts in their field and I wanted to freshen it up visually but also in terms of the way we approached our subject to make sure that well nothing we did in terms of our layouts or our subject matter would be patronizing to an expert it would also help someone who wasn't so well versed on it in so everything we did right from the concept of just like the look and feel through to like you know the the bold 
masthead and type and everything but through to like how we would approach everything from the layout and the page furniture and the hand holding of it it was all about just ensuring that somebody could come to it and see something that was appealing even if perhaps they weren't as au fait with the content Yes, and, and we're talking here about film. I can see even the covers. They're quite... Sometimes you release multiple covers and sometimes people want all of them. I mean, because it's it's a thing of beauty. We'll talk actually about the current one in a bit. But I just want to ask, those changes actually worked? Because you mentioned at the event, you know, the magazine has its... Is it its biggest reach ever? Or how, how, how is it working? I mean, because I think the print product's also still very important, right? For sight and sound. Yeah, totally. So again, another thing that... I realised when I arrived was that we'd been really underserving ourselves digitally, that uh, so much effort was being put into print, but at the same time it wasn't really doing what it should as a cross-platform brand and that we maybe needed to realise that we should be thinking about an audience and building an audience for Sight and Sound that, and be confident and comfortable with the fact that not all of them would go out and buy a copy of the print and we need to be okay with that and that actually treating our Instagram followers or our newsletter subscribers as readers at the same time, that that would be the best way to build like a community around the magazine. So... Since redesign, we've done really well on the newsstand and this year we had our first ABC increase of the 21st century. So we're really pleased with that and subscriber numbers are at like a four-year high, which is really amazing. But also if you combine, we launched a newsletter right at the beginning of the first lockdown, something we'd never done before. And we have 38,000 subscribers to that. The open rate is really high, like way above industry standard. You know, it feels like... It's an entity of its own and we have people who are almost like fans of the newsletter who maybe don't even buy the magazine, but also other people who are really sort of hardcore sight and sound readers who see that as this like weekly fix of it. So when you look at it overall, sight and sound's never had a bigger reach across platforms and a bigger community who would call themselves sight and sound readers than it has in its entire 90 year history. So we're really proud of what we've achieved. And we must talk about the new issue and the review of the greatest films of all time, the poll that you do every 10 years. And that just shows the importance of sight and sound because, you know, there's been stories from the New York Times to even my home country, Brazil, literally everywhere. People are talking about the new number one that just shows kind of the power of this poll. I mean, I think it's in a way quite unique among this type of polls. Yeah, I mean, it's it's huge. Mm. Like it was, again, to go back to when I arrived it was something that I could see looming on the horizon. It felt distant enough to be something to work towards as like a bit of a line in the sand of where we were as a magazine. But really quickly, probably to do with COVID and then having our big redesign project, I felt like I put my head down to get the redesign done, lifted it up, and all of a sudden it was time to do the poll, and it just really came upon us. And in those moments of putting it together and polling a whole world of film critics and the whole world of filmmakers, you know that this is a big deal already just from being a reader, but when you're in the thick of it and you really get to understand how much this means to people and how much it sets the rhythm of what, film discourse will be for the next 10 years and how the results of this poll they don't just have an impact in that they get people talking for a week they have an impact in they actually change deep perceptions of what is the film canon and what are the 
works that have resonated in the past, you know, the challenges to what has faded and why, the the reasons behind new things emerging. It's so huge. And the interest in it announcement on Thursday was just incredible. The the BFI website crashed because so many people were trying to come to it. It's like record traffic on the site. All the advanced copies of the magazine have basically sold out already. We were one of the number one trending topics on Twitter. There's a sort of subsection of Twitter, which I'm sure you know, called Film Twitter, basically, (laughs) which is an interesting place to observe any sort of discourse on film. And Film Twitter is definitely on fire right now in a mostly good way. And it's, it's just amazing to see how much these results matter and just the tone that they set for the conversation, it's uh, incredible, really. And for me, this list serves as, as guidance. And I think that this year is number one uh, more than ever. I've got to be honest with you, Mike. I haven't seen actually Gene uh, Dillman. I've seen, I've heard about the film. But, you know, looking at the list, I'm the kind of person who say, you know what, I actually must watch in the, in the coming months. I'm sure there will be quite a lot of people actually like that as well. Yeah, I think that's what's quite amazing about it is that when we first started the list, the first time it was held, the poll was in 1952 and 67 people voted, which I I imagine in 1952, that felt like a lot of people. They probably felt that that was polling, you know, a really wide range of opinions. And it gradually, as these things tend to do, anything that is, you know, annual or, you know, like the World Cup is on now, every time the World Cup is on, it always has to be bigger and better than last time. And that's been the idea with the poll is every 10 years, whoever's in control of it always wants to make it bigger than the last one. And for various reasons, you know, the obvious one is for the sense of like occasion. But in 2012 and now again in 2022 the main reason for making it bigger was to make it feel much more representative and inclusive of a wider range of opinions experiences just you know nationalities ethnicities just having a much more representative voice and I got a sense over the last few weeks that there were people maybe in that sort of film Twitter space who thought that us increasing the number of voters from like 800 to 1600, that there might be a sense that there'd be a dumbing down of the list in some way. And the fact that the exact opposite has happened, really, you know, there's no, you can't call this anything other than a really authentic list and an authentic representation of the different movements around previously underheard voices in film and how momentum has coalesced around certain things where there have been glaring omissions in this list for quite a long time and now you see things starting to emerge because there's so much more access to work than ever before you know people can amplify and share stories much more easily now and that the effect that's had, the influence that's had on people's diversity of their own experience and their own choices, just seeing that manifest in, it's a really exciting number one, but it's an incredibly exciting top 10. Mm-hmm. You can cut it anyway, but if you look at the top 50, it's crazy that like we've got like a top 250 ready to publish in January. And at the lower ends there, that's where it gets really interesting when you just see all the different things, the different nationalities coming through. So yeah, I, I feel this is a really democratic top 100 and it just shows the 
really like highlights the sort of difference in culture and opinion that's manifested over the last 10 years. And it's certainly, oh my God, it's certainly not dumbed down in any way or form because you do, of course, you have an exciting number one, you know, a little bit more experimental, something perhaps some people even didn't know, but there are some classics in there that everybody knows. So I think it's a genuine, healthy mix. You know, Vertigo is still number two, for example, right? Yeah, I think that's it when you say you feel that you will now want to go and see that film yeah i think that will be the same impact and actually seeing things like in that top 10 having citizen kane and vertigo both still in the top three and seeing things emerging you know kind of more recent classics like mulholland drive and in the mood for love i think it really shows that this is a hugely credible list and that the things that people may not have heard of that's not because they don't have value it's because you, they've just passed you by to this point and this list is now your opportunity to go and seek them out. It's, you know, it's not just a collection of opinions collated into a list. It's actually like the, probably the world's greatest watch list for any budding cinephile. That's how I treat the list. And was there a film that you were actually very joyful to see in the list? I have to say... One of my favorites, I was so so glad, it's at number seven, I believe. But Travail, I think it's such an amazing film. And I was, I mean, it's super exciting that it's at top 10 as well. But do you have one that you can choose from the top 100? Well, there are many things that... It's a hard question. Yeah, it is a hard <laughs> question. I mean, in terms of like personal favorites, it's, it's nice to see something. Because I think, you know, everyone goes crazy about Vertigo mm. for good reason. But, you know, my personal favorite Hitchcock film is Psycho. And I think seeing a genre film like that still have so much support behind it when you know there's four Hitchcock films in the top 100 and sometimes you can get a sense of a vote being split so to see so much love for Psycho still I love that when I thought about what may be the new number one way back about a year ago I did feel like it was David Lynch's moment perhaps and I could feel that a lot of people were getting behind Mulholland Drive which is one of my favorite films Mm. all the time so when it became clear that maybe I was deluded and actually it wasn't going to be that high, as the results came in, it was then a thrill to see it number eight in the poll. So that that meant a lot to me to see that in there. But no, there's so many things. And I love, I think the best contemporary filmmaker right now globally for me is Celine Sciamma. And to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire there in the top 100 is amazing. But even better for me is like I'm not the only person who voted for Petty Marmon, which has only been out for 18 months. And I came out of the cinema feeling like that was one of the most beautiful, powerful pieces of cinema I'd ever seen. And when I sat down to put my list together, I considered putting it on and then thought, well, it's OK, it's only just come out. Maybe it's a bit too soon. But then I thought, well, why wait 10 years to put it on next time when actually I think in 10 years' time I will still think it's one of the most amazing pieces of cinema I've ever seen. So to see other people vote for that and for it to appear like low down in the top 250, that's an amazing thing too. And of course, in the new issue, we also have the director's poll, which is also super interesting. And, you know, again, in the event, uh, sorry, I completely forgot the name of the director that said, I think they voted for uh, Kung Fu Panda as well. I love I love those kind of little curiosities here and there. Do you, do you remember which one was it? Oh, I don't remember who voted. Yeah, yeah, but I remember Edgar Wright at the launch event flagged that as one of his yeah. favorite choices, didn't he? No, I've been so submerged in all these votes, I sometimes lose track of who voted for what. But it's so I, f- I feel with the director's poll, it's almost more interesting mm-hmm. to look at the individual ballots than it is to actually bring those opinions together. 
because for me, as much as film criticism has always informed and added context to my enjoyment of cinema and I've been a reader of film criticism since I was a teenager the things that made me fall in love with cinema were of course the films themselves and therefore that train spotter interest in what does this director who means a lot to me and always has done what do they consider the best films actually that's got like a little extra special tingle to it to pour through those lists and see their choices and as has been pointed out it's really interesting to see things where you see that George Miller voted for a Bong Joon-ho film and Bong Joon-ho voted for a George Miller film and the fact that all of these ballots are submitted independently no one knows anyone else's choices and when you see little serendipitous moments like that it really brings it to life it's amazing I have to say there are four different covers I was talking about the covers at the beginning they are amazing I mean it's very hard to choose I have to say mm. so one is the 2001 one is uh, Vertigo the other one is Jin Duman of course and then we have Citizen Kane yeah. and tell us I mean the story is not over yet because I think in January you will release the list of the critics as well I, I like that it's, it's, it's an ongoing story well we do see it as a decade in film coming mm. up. So it's not for us to create one big bang event just for social media's benefit. You know, we're obviously enjoying all the attention and we're enjoying how much conversation has been sparked through it. But it's never about that one moment. It's about the continued discourse. And we we ourselves will continue to contextualise it and write more about it and release more of the information. So as you said, in January, we'll put up every single ballot in full with all comments from all 1600 voters which you know people will be able to get lost down rabbit holes of going through all these voters ballots which is just that's amazing but we'll put all that up on the site and a full 250 list so the 100 is what we focus on to begin with because you know it's a nice tight number it makes sense to people but i think it's a little bit more interesting to do a 250 because i say you know we're very proud of how varied and wide-reaching the top 100 is, but the top 250 is even more so, so that's exciting. So we'll, we'll do that in January. But what's great about this is that the whole community of cinephiles around the world are so interested in it, and, so, and people are so capable of finding their own stories and things now and analysing data just off their own backs that actually you can already see just on social media that people are crunching the numbers and looking for threads and themes. So I saw somebody already has produced a list of all of the films that used to be in the top 100 that have now fallen out. You know, So rather than focusing on what's, well. on what's yeah. in, someone's focused on what's out. And that's something that we haven't done yet. But now someone's done it, we don't need to do that because it's there and we find as much interest in the things that other people notice. Because it's like, you know, not to overcook this and call it art as a list, but, you know, any artist knows that once you've put it out into the world, it doesn't belong to you anymore. You have to allow your audience to make of it what they want to and to analyse it in their own way. So it actually becomes really interesting to us to see what threads other people pick out of it and what they feel is important because it isn't always the same thing that we thought that they would feel was important so it's yeah it's so much fun to watch thank you very much mike and sight and sounds greatest films of all time issues out now with four stunning covers including one from the winning film gene dillman 
Moving now from film to travel. This week I wrote about the remaining importance of the travel guide for the Monocle Minute. So many new publishers out there making guides that escape from the obvious. One of them is Vanessa Grau from the Massy Nassi Chic Guides. She tells me about her idea of a perfect guide and the latest edition of her Don't Be a Tourist in Paris. Vanessa Grau, a pleasure to have you here uh, on Monaco 24, here on The Stack. Of course, we're going to talk about your lovely travel guides and more about your brand as well. First of all, I mean, tell us about the beginnings of the Massy Nassi guides. And because I know it started online, I know we have, we're going to talk about the beautiful physical books. But tell us about the beginnings, actually. So it started in Paris. I mean, I'm tuning in from Paris, which is where I started this little blog called Messy Nessie Chic out of my very messy bedroom, which has kind of become this, I don't know, cult website over the years, or you might even call it an internet dinosaur, just because against all odds, it's still going pretty strong. And I always treated it as my own sort of online cabinet of curiosities for forgotten history, unsung stories and offbeat adventures to be had. And Paris had sort of always, I mean, from the moment I arrived became this huge inspiration for that because, I mean, I've basically been living in an open air museum for the past 12 years or 13 years, I think, since I came here. But yeah, I mean, really quite quickly after moving here, I think one of the things that stood out to me as I was getting to know the city was just how the major landmarks completely dominate the tourist experience here. And I mean, as a student, I was sort of skipping half my classes and, you know, finding all these amazing little stories and places that just get completely missed and ignored even by Parisians. So the Paris element was a really, was something that set it, set the blog apart. There were things like Reddit at the time where articles were going viral on Reddit and it just, I kind of built this audience up over the years really organically and eventually that allowed me to write some books. Because I, I feel today, Vanessa, that that's what people are looking for when it comes to travel recommendations. They don't want just, you know, the usual, like we all know about the Eiffel Tower or whatever other. They want kind of a personal look to a city. And I think that's what you did amazingly well with Paris, right? I mean, that's the reality today of iconic cities like Paris. They've become sort of ground zero for the effects of over-tourism and stereotypes. So... I really ended up writing this first guidebook on Paris as the complete antithesis to the tourist guidebook. I mean, not because I think that tourists are the enemy, mm -hmm. but because I just think that mainstream tourism has made travel so much less personal. I mean, why, why wouldn't you take your own interests and frame of mind into account when discovering new places? Because I mean, mental health is such a big topic today, but it's rarely factored into the context of travel, which is, of course, probably one of the healthiest things you can do when you're, you know, going mad at home. So that kind of became the backbone of the books. Each chapter is based on a mood. And if we lean into these different moods, it's kind of like a secret recipe to get you in this mindset that's just much more imaginative and freeing when we travel. Tell us about the move, actually, to print. You started online, a very successful 
website, a strong media presence, but I love the fact that you also, you know, because I, I love uh, like a print guide in my hands when I'm traveling. I think it's quite trusty because sometimes, I know it sounds silly, but sometimes the internet doesn't work or something's happening, you want a break from your eyes. Is that what you wanted? Was that always the plan to have something in print? And, and by the way, I have to mention of Paris, but also New York. Yes, I mean, it's every writer's dream to have something in print and, you know, to be able to walk into a bookstore and see your book there. I mean, I'm still very much online as well. You know, this book mm -hmm. is available on in an ebook, but I've also since launched an online travel concierge service. So it kind of goes beyond the book as well. It's for a very scandalously low price per month. You basically get a personal travel assistant to research very bespoke travel plans for you and recommend the best local secrets anywhere in the world. But this, I mean, the Don't Be a Tourist in Paris kind of franchise, I guess. I don't know what mm -hmm. to call it because I've written, I'm on my third one. I'm writing Don't Be a Tourist in London now, which is where I was born and raised. And I have to say, I never thought that, I mean, writing a guidebook is so different to writing a novel because it's it needs constant maintenance. Just like I never realized that you would have to always be thinking about whether your book still represents the city, you know, five years on. So it's really like I, I mean, we're on my, this is the third edition now for Paris. So it's kind of like a lifelong commitment for me. It's not like most authors get to kind of sign off in their book and send it off into the sunset. It's kind of like a constant child that needs care. <laughs> It's so true what you said, that it's going to be a constant book in your life. I mean, if you want to keep updating, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you will because of the success as well. T tell us about your move to Paris. What, why what, Why did you decide? Was that always your dream? Because I can say for me, since as a child, I wanted to move to London. I had this feeling about the city. Did you have the same thing with Paris? Absolutely not. I did not have an, any of the sort of, I don't know, Emily in Paris <laughs> aspirations of, of moving to Paris. I actually really didn't want to even, you know, think about dating French boys. I thought they were really stuck up. So <laughs> I kind of went a little bit broke in London and my parents had a couch that I could crash on in Paris. So I moved there as an experiment. I wouldn't say I moved there. I just left as an experiment and met my now husband and father of my kids the first weekend I got there. At a house party so that had that played probably a, a big influence in staying but also just i was riding around on the back of his scooter from sort of weekend one and just it was an amazing way to discover the city and i you know i don't think i could have gone back is he um, french he is french yes. okay so <laughs> and 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 paris is it sings to me as well you know i, I went there a few times recently it's kind of booming. I mean, again, of course, COVID affected literally every single city in the world, but I think there's a lot of new restaurant openings, hotels. It's a city that never kind of stops. I mean, especially when it comes, you know, to tourism and, and new places. What's your vision of Paris nowadays? Well, I like that it's sort of, it's still teetering between, you know, this historic open air museum, but it's very much a living museum. And, you know, Paris, we're picking influence and inspiration from other cities and taking what we like and you know making I mean it's also becoming a very green city we're trying to make it very bike friendly we've got the Olympics coming up which is very exciting I think <laughs> hopefully it's not too much of a, a crazy show but 
I mean, yeah, there's a lots of lots of exciting things coming for Paris, and it's it's becoming a lot more friendly to travelers. I think 20 years ago, a lot of Americans would have thought, you know, oh, Parisians are so rude, and it's a it's so different now. You know, there's everyone speaks English, everyone's friendly, everyone's especially after COVID, we're so happy to see travelers and, and tourists, and yeah, so. And I, I don't want to put you in the spot, but I mean, of course, there's so many tips here in the book, but is there a place, I think, you know, a lot of people, I think one of the main concerns when they go to a city is like about restaurants, you know, where they can eat. I mean, do you, do you have perhaps a couple of favorites you can mention, a little taster for the book in a way? Uh, well, I mean, there's, the chapters are sort of inspired by mood so for example i don't know it depends what mood you're in so for example the first chapter is called paris runaways and so that's sort of for artists and creatives that come to paris on a shoestring budget searching for inspiration right so i mean there's lots of great dive bars there's le piano vache in the latin quarter which kind of brings you back to 1960s paris around like kind of sorbonne 1968 may riots and you know you can find a live French swing there on Monday nights, or I would recommend going to kind of like a live model art class at Picasso's old art school. And then, you know, as well as chasing sort of Hemingway and the lost generation of the 1920s, we can trace a lesser known lost generation, find kind of James Baldwin's Paris and other diverse writers and artists who brought Harlem to the Seine in the 1920s. And then there's another chapter that's called Lonely Hearts Club, and that's for Paris through the eyes of the solo traveler. And you'll find places to strike up conversations with strangers. There's a philosophy club that takes place upstairs at Café de Flore once a month. There's a place that I love, which is in a section called Where to Feed a Broken Heart. And it's this <laughs> wonderful Armenian restaurant that's hidden, very unsuspecting place behind you would never know there's nothing to say that it's a restaurant and it's in hidden in this cultural center on the first floor run by this charming mom and pop husband and wife team serving the most delicious eastern european dumplings and they treat you like family i mean i could go on but but that's an amazing selection as well and and i was going to say i mean it's been such a success and i i, I felt very happy when you said that you were actually at the moment, writing a London one, right? Don't be a tourist in London. So is that because I think now there's an expectation because I, I you know, I read the Paris Guide, it's lovely. And I kind of want to see the same thing with other cities as well. Oh, absolutely. The, each guide very much because this formula of, I call don't be a tourist a formula. It's mm -hmm. like the secret recipe. And I'm c carrying the formula over to each book. So London will almost have the same chapter names, you know, like you've still got... Like, for example, you've still got Parents Are Coming to Town, which is a, a later chapter, which is, you know, for parents, when your parents are coming to visit, you know, where to take your parents, or also if you have kids, where to take your kids. There's a down the rabbit hole chapter, which, you know, if you're in the mood for thrill seeking, you can go to underground places, esoteric, superstitious Paris, Libertine, London. There's even a high-end, a beginner's guide to high-end sex clubs. You know, it's really, there's, everything's there. But, you know, there's always kind of like a formula, I think. And it can really, Don't Be a Tourist can really work wherever you are, even in your own city. You know, the book is kind of like the pair of fresh eyes that everyone needs to help us fall in love with our cities again. 
And that was when I wrote Don't Be a Tourist in New York, I really had locals in mind more than ever, I think. And now I'm writing London. I think the pressure is even more because I'm a Londoner originally. So yeah, but it's been quite a few, This the London book has taken me longer than any of them. Arguably Paris was 10 years in the making, but when, from the time I actually started, you know, putting pen to paper, just because I guess COVID, and then I actually became a mom to twins for the first time at the end of COVID. So it's taking a little longer than expected, but it's on its way. And I also saw on the website, are there mini guides as well as an ebook, right? For other cities. Yeah. yeah. So we do like weekend guides to lots of sort of additional add-ons for Paris, sort of like, you know, that we have a literary guide, literary lover's guide to Paris, or just like a weekend guide to Paris. So it's more snackable guides. And then there's guides to all over Europe or America. And again, with the concierge service, we have like, you know, a whole map of small snackable, kind of like the kind of the, the email that you would send to a friend. If your friend says, I'm going to Barcelona this weekend, do you have any tips? And you'll get sort of like a page of, you know, a hundred spots, sort of following the don't be a tourist locations and addresses that you would expect to find. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Don't Be a Tourist in Paris is out now. You can find out more going to massinassichic.com. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Adam Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. You can always listen again at monaco.com, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. This song is played in an iconic scene at the end of the seventh best film of all time, Bert Haver. The song is by Corona, The Rhythm of the Night. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Thank you for listening. This is the